Aloha, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Our Undoing Radio. I am your host, Jeremy Vaney, and uh, thank you right up front here for listening. Much appreciated. Of course, I do this totally for free for you without advertisement, except for my own advertisement for OurUndoing.com. So this is that. Please come to OurUndoing.com and consider signing up for a monthly membership or a lifetime membership. Um, if that's not your bag and, um, you still want to support this show in some way, I implore you to leave a review wherever you are listening to this. It's hosted by Podbean. It's on iTunes. It's on iHeartRadio. It's pretty much everywhere that you uh, would listen to a podcast. Heck, it's even on YouTube. So wherever you're listening to this, uh, please leave a review. I would much appreciate that. If you like what you're hearing, please help spread the word about this show. Speaking of this show, this episode of this show, um, I should just, I guess, say right up front that toward the end, I mention a man named Jeff Kripal, and if you're not familiar with him, he was the chair of the Department of Religion at um, Rice University for eight years. He's now the associate dean of the School of Humanities, and he's the author of a kajillion books, approximately. All of which, or at least all of which that I've read, um have to do with the impossible. So paranormal things, spiritual things, things that can't happen according to the Western reality tunnel, um, how they happen, the story they may be telling. Are we actually story makers? You know, this sort of thing. It's He's a really interesting author, and you should um, check him out. Again, Jeff Kripal. It's K-R-I-P-A-L. It's probably pronounced Kripal. He probably never corrected me in all the time that I've known him, but... <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I hear it pronounced Kripal, and I wonder, geez, did he just never tell me that I've been saying it wrong all these years? But um, I'm sticking with Kripal. So Simon Cox is the guest on this episode, and he didn't correct me. So there you go. That must mean something good. I don't know. Anyway, let's get going here with Simon Cox, beginning at my now somewhat redundant original intro. Sorry. <laughs> Aloha, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Our Undoing Radio. Another, another, what? Stone in the path to our discovery of the multiple meanings of the word sacred in this season. I am here with my buddy old pal, Simon Cox. Um, Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, what I've been doing is, instead of doing sort of a resume for people, I just, I just ask people... Um, given the topic, what should we know about you that is going to inform our discussion? Okay. It's certainly relevant to understand that I was not raised in a religious household, I suppose. Um, my, my dad is a, a mathematical neuroscientist. My mom is a ex-Catholic, uh, spiritual but not religious type. Um, and uh, so I was raised without kind of any religion whatsoever. They weren't anti-religious, but it just wasn't even discussed in the household. Um, and then I did my undergraduate studies in classics at the University of Houston. And then I moved to China for six years and lived in what I call a kind of quasi-monastic context um, in a Taoist temple. And then I came back to the States in 2014 to start my graduate studies at Rice University um, in the Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism program, uh, where I wrote a dissertation on um, the history of the idea of the subtle body. Uh, so wow. That's kind of... 
background in a nutshell. Huh. So uh, would you, well, let's start at the very beginning here. What does the word sacred mean to you? Um, so I, I mean, I'm kind of inclined, there are a lot of different interpretations of this idea, and a lot of people have written really good kind of histories of where the idea even comes from. Uh, I'm inclined to embrace kind of what uh, Mircea Eliada, who's sort of the, the grandfather of the intellectual lineage that I've become part of through my graduate studies. Um, he, he talks a lot about the sacred and the profane and the kind of conversation between them. And he defines the sacred as what is ultimately real. And I think that's kind of the most useful way of thinking about it. So does that take different forms um, if there are sort of socially agreed upon sacred sites, for example, or sacred instruments versus personal? Or would that apply all the way around? Um, well, yeah. So it, it has different cultural manifestations because different cultures, cultures regard different things as what, are, what is ultimately real. You know, like in our culture... What is real is the, the material world, um, but that's qu quite novel. And in fact, in most kind of religious contexts, the real is kind of some uh, transcendental entity. Um, and the physical world is seen as a kind of illusory manifestation. So then the sacred actually is, um, when you say, or the real, I should say, the real is subjective. I wouldn't say subjective, but I think Eliado would say it is uh, kind of culturally conditioned. Okay. So, do you have depending on what you think, do you have a feeling associated with the sacred? I mean, I know you're talking about a definition that works for you, but I, for instance, part of, some of the things that I try to get into with people are like when they go to sacred sites or they pick up what are they are told are sacred objects. Um, there's a feeling that is associated with that if it rings true for them. And is that feeling actually a feeling about what we're calling the sacred, or is it something else being misidentified? Um, have you ever had a feeling that you thought you, you could identify as particularly sacred? Yeah, absolutely. So when I'm talking about the sacred is the real, that's quite a kind of academic way of, of talking about this stuff. But uh, in lived reality, yes, I mean, the, there's an experience of the sacred um, is something I've known since I was a little kid, even. Uh, because I was raised in a non-religious household, um, my dad's kind of, like, his attempt at giving us a kind of coherent narrative as little kids was uh, actually through, like, kind of American mythology. Um, so every night before bed, we would listen to uh, this uh, Paul Bunyan, the opera, written by uh, the American composer uh, by Benjamin Britten and W.H. Auden, the, the poet who wrote the libretto for it. And uh, so it's this whole mythology of, like, you know, Paul Bunyan drags his axe across um, the earth and creates the Grand Canyon. And so then when I was seven, we went to visit the Grand Canyon, and I was kind of steeped in this mythological context, even though it was ostensibly secular, right? And so I had this experience of, like, I mean, when you see Grand Canyon, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. There's, I think, an experience of something truly special. And for me, that was the kind of first experience of what you might call the sacred. Hmm. And what about your just your journey to China and that whole undertaking? Was there a, a sacred nature about that? I mean, or that doesn't just happen in a vacuum. You don't just decide to, to uproot yourself and go do that, right? Right, yeah. So once again, I can go, go back to a kind of childhood context, and specifically the character of, of Batman. 
uh, who I, I was really into Batman, the animated series as a child. It aired, like, it was right for my age group. And Batman, you know, famously goes and uh, kind of studies martial arts in the mystical orient. Um, and then when I was a teenager, uh, the movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out. And the whole thing is centered in this mystical mountain called Wudong Mountain. And I looked it up and it was a real place, um, a sacred place within Taoism. And so it became a kind of like sacred place within my own little cosmos when I was a 14-year-old. And that's where I ended up going. Uh, and it was kind of like a, a spiritual pilgrimage um, through this kind of like hodgepodge sense of a sacred cosmos that arose through the you know combination of cartoons and comic books and the kind of American mythology that my parents introduced me to and stuff like that. Wow. And then you became a martial arts master there, right? Um, I don't know if you would call uh, yourself that, but <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah. wrong. So, so, yeah, that, that's, no, yeah, you're not wrong. It, okay. it was part of the training. It was so very martial arts centric. You kind of became Batman. That was the goal. <laughs> that's incredible. Now, what is that like? Because as you're going through this, of course, I'm sure part of your training or even just the way of life there is uh, demands one to be humble. Uh, but if you're going up f to become Batman, who is not exactly a humble character, I mean, what, what is that, uh, what is that like for you internally? I guess this is sort of off the yeah. topic, but it's just interesting. Well, yeah. So, so I mean, Batman in, in the kind of stories around him, he kind of went from place to place and studied under different masters, but never stayed long enough to really become well, like indoctrinated by a specific system, you know? Um, but I, I did. I went to one place, I had one master, and I stayed for six years, and I became completely devoted to this one sect. And so martial arts is just the, the foundational training there. Then you kind of graduate into higher level kind of qigong training, and the highest level is Taoist inner alchemy. Um, so I went way beyond kind of where Batman would have gone in his training <laughs> with the stuff. It, it became a, a whole spiritual kind of regimen. Huh. And do you find a conflict uh, or not with between that and... Um the academic world, you know, in terms of, uh, quote unquote, going native or that sort of thing. Is it looked down upon or is it embraced? Uh, kind of both. Yeah. Academia has a very ambivalent attitude towards this sort of stuff and people kind of fall along different lines, I guess within, cause academia itself is, is a multiplicity. So there are people that think what I did is absolutely like the worst thing in the world. And you could never be a scholar kind of after doing that. And then there are people think that, like my, my own advisor in my department at Rice University, they're much more friendly towards this stuff. They're like, you can't really know religion until you've kind of entered into that spiritual universe. But certainly, I mean, my own master in China was what I would call like uh, an apophatic mystic. He thought books were terrible. He always told me I read too much and that it was injuring my liver within the context of Chinese medicine. That kind of makes sense. Um, but I found his kind of lack of intellectual engagement really left me wanting and that's why I went to grad school to get the intellectual stuff but now that I just finished grad school I'm kind of like oh god all these books all this talking uh you know I just want to get go live in a cave for a while so I haven't figured out the balance myself huh a bat cave would you call it <laughs> you could be sure, a yeah, Batman bat Simon cave. this is wonderful <laughs> I don't have the childhood trauma and I also lack the inheritance I think <laughs> yeah that's that's a problem um yeah so can I ask you to describe uh, something that you told me? Um, I think it's about the Taoist uh, belief that body parts have souls. 
and that they're always trying to kill you? <laughs> is this something we can talk about? Because when we when we say life is sacred, you know, I'd love to know what that means in that context. So if you can explain that better than I just did, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So within Taoism, um, it's I think it would be a pretty uncontroversial thing for me to say that that everything is, is sacralized within Taoism because everything is subsumed within the Tao, and the Tao. Um, is sacred. And so everything in the cosmos, from being and non-being, and everything in between is kind of a part of this cosmic exhalation of uh, chi energy. Um, and so within the Taoism, the body, your own physical body, is, is hugely important because it is seen as a kind of miniature version of, of the universe. I don't know, you probably talk about this in other episodes, kind of microcosmic, macrocosmic correspondence and stuff like that. Would that be familiar? Uh, yeah, I'm sure I don't use those words, but yes. Okay. Thank yeah. you for, because now I can use those words, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> and so within Taoism, um, your whole, your body is seen as this whole ecology of different spirits. And so the, the main ones are kind of the three Hun souls and the seven poor souls. And the Hun souls, are, they're also called cloud souls sometimes. They, they live in your liver. And the poor souls, there's seven of those and they live in your lungs. And a lot of Taoist practices are kind of like making peace between all of these different uh, intelligences within your body. And so making peace, what, why? What, what happens if you don't? So yeah, that's um, that's where things get bad um, because the the poor souls they're kind of they're kind of jerks, um, and so they'll kind of take over and they'll even try to to like kill other souls and stuff like that. Um, so the, there's sort of a, a really ancient way of talking about this that goes all the way back to the early Han Dynasty, where the body is like your nation, um, and it had, there are all these different tribes, um, and if if the emperor doesn't kind of uh, organize things and go and visit every corner of his empire, then things will fall into disarray. Um, and so there are meditations where you kind of, to speak anachronistically, you'd say kind of do mindfulness things where you focus on every part of your body, and that's seen as the emperor surveying his entire kingdom to bring everybody kind of into, into peace. And so your, the cloud souls in your liver, they're kind of they're associated with heaven, and they want to go up. And then the poor or the white souls of your lungs, they're associated with earth, and they want to go down. So if the cloud souls had they, their way, they just leave. And if the, the white souls had their way, they'd also go down and both just kind of want to kill you. And so you want to get them to kind of, it's like using uh, a chariot with like multiple horses. You want to get everybody kind of working together to keep the whole thing intact. Wow. And is there um, an explanation of how they figured this out? No, that's a super ancient uh, tradition in Taoism. <laughs> Um, there's no, like, the guy who discovered these souls, uh, no tales of that kind that, that I'm aware of. Do you think that there is sacred knowledge? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Do you think it comes from people, or do you think it happen? It, it comes to people? Um, I would be more inclined to say it, it happens to people. Yeah, it seems like no matter where you are in the world, if you go back far enough, you're dealing with an ancient culture that has a sophisticated body of knowledge about, well, this would be an example, or, you know, how to build pyramids, or whatever. 
and yeah. it seems to just come out of nowhere. <laughs> what do you make of that? Like, you know, my my own personal um, stuff or whatever, life with this kundalini energy, uh, is that if I shut up for a few seconds, this energy will come alive. That's not my own will. That will make my body do things that I don't know anything about that look like Tai Chi or whirling dervish twirls or yogic postures, you know, this sort of thing. And right. people have talked about this. Uh, so there seems to be like just inherent knowledge, like sophisticated, coordinated knowledge that happens to us. I, I don't know if it's through silence or what, but do you think that that's the origin point of all of these things that we call ancient, that they're not ancient, they're just inherent? Yeah, I mean, that's that's like the big question, right, man? <laughs> So, uh, I mean, I'm I'm still I waffle between the two main views. I think the kind of uh, view of something like a Jungian unconscious, because because in our the the day to day thing, the the consciousness that Jeremy and Simon are operating within is a very very it's kind of the tip of the iceberg of what I would call consciousness, right? Um, we're operating on a, a very kind of small wavelength with this stuff, whereas in our if we take our entire spiritual life and our dream life and everything into account. There's so much more richness, art life, things beyond language, you know, that everybody has experience of. And so you could say that that's this fertile ocean from which all of this stuff comes. Um, but at the same time, when you talk about ancient civilizations and their knowledge, uh, like the, the Taoist bifurcation between these Hun souls, the celestial, and the kind of terrestrial or bodily poor souls, um, that's been likened to the uh, kind of the Egyptian distinction between the Ka and the Ba souls. And Egypt, Egyptian kind of uh, physiology also has quite complex uh, political relationships between the different things in the body. And you would take the organs out and put them in jars and you're embalming someone, so on and so forth. It's it's kind of belies uh, the imagination to, to, to suppose that it's just coincidence that these things are so similar. So the hypothesis that there is some unitary ancient origin to these things, I think, is not entirely unreasonable as well. Yeah, and, but then you, you get to things like um, a, what, what people call sacred sites, right? Uh, it can be in a mountain, it can be anywhere. And it seems to be like you get there and collectively there's an agreement that this place is quote-unquote special. Um, is that true for the Taoists who sort of believe that the real is the special? I mean, do they have sacred sites? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the place I was, Wudong Mountain, is uh, one of the most sacred peaks in China. But um, they have whole lists uh, that go back thousands of years of like um, the kind of the grotto caves and the blessed lands, they call them. And these are specific like physical locations within uh, what you might call, well, within China, um, of, of caves and mountains predominantly because uh, mountains are kind of high in, in yang energy and caves are high in, in yin energy. Um, and these places are homes to different deities and you go to different places to propitiate different people and even play different places to do different practices. Um, so sp the specific physical location as sacred place is like absolutely central to Taoism. Yeah. What delineates a place uh, being sacred? What makes it stand out? Where you go, okay, this mountain, not that one. Well, oftentimes, uh, kind of anomalous things happened there. So, for example, I was at Wudong Mountain, and Wudong Mountain was just a kind of 
another mountain. I mean, f from an historical perspective, we have evidence of people doing weird religious stuff there back into the Neolithic. Um, so, you know, three, four thousand years ago, people were already, um, there's evidence of religious activity on, on the peaks there. Um, but the story of how it became special is from the, the Tang dynasty in the uh, um, 7th to 8th century, specifically the second emperor of the Tang dynasty. There was a huge drought in China, and he sent some of his rainmakers, these Taoist specialists in weather magic, down south to go um, do ceremonies to bring rain. And as they were on their way, they stopped at this, this peak, and above the peak they see five dragons flying in the sky. And they um, did a ceremony to honor these five dragons, and then sure enough, there was rain, and kind of uh, the whole empire was saved from famine. And so that peak became named the Five Dragons Peak. And that's like the oldest peak in Wudan that people venerated. Wow, that's interesting. So, okay, and now I, I spoke to my friend Lahua for the first episode of this about Hawaii and about uh, Mauna Kea. And she really went through, like, what makes Mauna Kea sacred. And um, it it sounds like there's this almost scientific observation of how nature works and the fact that it's home to a freshwater aquifer and you know it's sort of this observation of how nature plays out there with the reverence for how just amazing this place is that makes them want to do the Hawaiians want to um sort of ritualize and and start doing things uh not necessarily for the mountain because the mountain as she says doesn't need you to do anything but you ask, can I do these things? Can I make these chants and these songs? Can we be here and do this? Is there a sense of it like that uh, where you were? Or is it, I mean, because it almost sounds like what you're talking about is like a paranormal event takes place there. They see dragons <laughs> and then mm -hmm. they they form rituals around that as opposed to um, what the, the naturalness of the place has to offer the people uh, calls to them. Is that fair to say or no? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's totally the model that I'm, I'm proposing for Wudong specifically. Um, but I, I think both models are kind of at work in China. Like some places you go and it's just obviously a sacred place because it's like a, a beautiful, um, just massive mountain sticking up in the middle of nowhere, you know. Um, and Or like a, a grotto cave that's like truly uh, like astounding. But Wudong, where I was, it, it doesn't really... It's not really like that. It's in an extremely hilly, kind of uh, treacherous province, um, kind of very uh, peripheral for basically the entirety of Chinese history, which was much to its uh, benefit. That's why kind of hermits kept were going there uh, through really the 1990s. Uh, ever since then, it's been a little too commercial for like real Taoist hermits. They've all moved kind of south. Um, but Wudong in particular, since it didn't, it wasn't like a striking natural beauty necessarily. Um, it's been the site of paranormal events throughout its history. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, th that Five Dragons one is kind of the first story, but stories of people seeing really strange things happening in the sky continue. There's a whole chronicle of them from the 15th century when the third emperor of the Ming Dynasty built the massive temple complex that exists there today. At the inauguration of a bunch of the temples, the all the workers would, like, scream in terror as some massive thing would just kind of come out of the sky. Um, and it was interpreted as a, a good omen from the gods to whom the temples were dedicated and stuff like that. Um, but people to this day continue to see stuff there all the time. Um, huh. So when you build a temple there, 
what is the goal of that? Is it to work with some sort of energy that you perceive to be there, or is it to control it? Something else? Um, yeah, so within Taoism, because Taoism is the kind of, uh, it's deeply related with the, the Chinese uh, kind of aesthetics of feng shui that's been kind of popularized in, in the West and kind of, you know, rearranging your office for maximum workflow and stuff like that. Um, but in a classical Taoist kind of geomantic context, they always build the temples along the kind of natural terrain. So there's one temple called uh, the Southern Cliff Temple, and it's like just um, following this cliff all around the mountain, and it's super narrow. And you'd have to be kind of crazy to, to build a temple there. Um, but they, they built it there, and, and they didn't they try to change kind of as little as possible. And there's another one called the Prince's Peak, Taizapua, and that also it has this kind of snaky thing because they didn't want to just like dynamite through the the hillside like they do today um, the temples are built in places that were they have natural sacrality to them and the temple would be built to be part of the kind of natural landscape as, as much as possible and then does the place call to people like there seems to be um I, I just find it interesting here in hawaii like so many people who feel as though they're called to the island and of course i'm sure that phenomenon is is modern <laughs> you know what i mean like Prior to this being uh, part of America, I'm sure uh, there wasn't that. So it's almost as if whatever the, the energy is here, uh, or the god or whatever, goddess, um, has to sort of change its tactic with the times. Is there a sense of that at, a, at, that, at that place in China, of, of sort of changing your tactics with the times? Hmm. That's, that's a really interesting question. Uh, but I mean... I yeah, I would say absolutely. A lot of the sites in China that are quite different from uh, Hawaii in that um, basically since uh, the Tang Dynasty, since the 7th century, there have been pan-Chinese kind of uh, pilgrimage routes um, that people have been following. So Wudong has been calling to people for, you know, 1,500 years. People from far off would go there, uh, you know, to pay respects at the temples and stuff like that. Um, so it, it, there isn't, it hasn't actually had to change a lot with modern times. Now the Chinese Bureau of, of Tourism is kind of in charge of most, more and more of the sacred mountains. There's been kind of political struggles over the past 30 years between whether it's the Tourism Bureau or the, the Chinese Taoist Association that controls it. Mm -hmm. And the Tourism Bureau kind of uh, seems to win out every time. And they just went out in Wudong a few years ago. Huh. And then that led to a kind of really kind of wholesale, like, development, new temples, new roads, and stuff like that. So they're kind of expediting the availability of these sacred places. Do people now, when they, they see things in the sky, uh, would someone not of that culture see a dragon, or would they see something else? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, because there, oftentimes people, the foreigners, because more and more foreigners are coming here through the popularization of this specific mountain through kung fu movies and stuff like that. Um, and people would see UFOs all the time, flying saucers, like straight up flying saucers. And people would talk about these. Um, so, yeah, it's is it a cultural conditioning that, that creates these kind of different phenomena that people see? Because uh, I, I don't know anyone, uh, Chinese or Western, who actually saw a dragon out there. <laughs> well, see, because yeah. this gets to the question of if what's sacred is the real, what is the real if you're seeing through a cultural lens? So... Is is the right. real the yeah. phenomenon in the sky, or is it the thing that drew you there? Is there some, and I guess maybe, I guess 
sort of in this question is the sense that what the real is, is absolute and absolutism. So is there an absolute quality that is there um, around which the relativity of cultural lenses um, can sort of get a piece of? I mean, I would say just the evidence of Wudong more and more becoming an international kind of tourist destination in 1994 is declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site um, is evidence of the fact that there is something there that transcends any specific cultural context, you know, because people are attracted to this from all over the world. Um, and you, you could do a kind of reductionist reading where you're like, oh, it's just kung fu movies or, oh, it's just some sort of manifestation of neocolonialism or whatever. Um, but none of that really takes into account the the kind of affective dimension of how people go there and are, are changed and people are called there Um like the, how I ended up there, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. I I finished my undergrad and I was trying to find a job uh, in Japan because I had a martial arts master there I wanted to study with. But I graduated into the 2008 recession, so there were no jobs anywhere to be found. Um, and I worked kind of a crappy job in Houston for a few months and saved up enough money to live in China for a year. And I'd heard about this Taoist master through the kind of the grapevine. And I was like, well, I don't want to be around here. I'm not going to get a job where I want one. So I'm just going to go live, uh, you know, on a shoestring in China and kind of see what's up. Um, There's just kind of chance. Like, it it doesn't make much sense how I ended up there. And most people I met there had stories like that. That's interesting, because that's actually similar to how I ended up in Hawaii, which is, you know, I'd visited a number of years earlier. I fell in love with it and knew I wanted to move here at some point. But then after the 2008 recession, uh, I had lost my taste for television, which I was, I'd been working in. And so I just started, you know, taking crap jobs. Right. So I was like working at a pet store and I thought, well, if the new economy is crap jobs, I can go do that in paradise. So I just (laughs) saved up my little pennies, (laughs) sold my big camera and moved here without, you know, on a whim with no job or anything lined up. And it just worked out. (laughs) So that's kind of similar. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, the reason that you move to a place, um, of course, transforms over time. So, and then you sort of figure out, oh, okay, maybe this, if there is a story that's pre-written, maybe this is the real reason that I'm here or one of them. What was that for you? I mean, you went in that way and you went in with Batman in mind. Um, but what did you come out with? Yeah. So there's this, uh, great quote from, uh, the philosopher Hegel. Um, and he says the, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. Um, and it's, you know, it's very, what, what the hell does this mean? Uh, it's basically, th- the meaning is that uh, kind of, you, you can only understand a situation when it's over. Mm. After all the cards have been played, only in hindsight can, does do things really make sense. Um, and so, as far as like my going to China and all that stuff, I feel like dusk is only beginning to settle. And I'm only now, kind of after grad school, beginning to understand what any of that was about. Because... Um, in, in graduate school, significantly, I studied the Tibetan and Chinese perceptions of Buddhism, how Buddhism kind of went from India and Central Asia and how it was assimilated in Tibet in a certain way and assimilated in China in a completely different way. And seeing that, I began to reflect on how Taoism is being assimilated in the West. Um, and part of what launched me over to China was uh, kind of, uh, I wanted to know more about Taoism and Looking around, there was a pretty kind of sorry state of affairs here in Houston, Texas. There weren't any Taoist temples or any Taoists you could speak to. You could go and read one of the like four translations of the Tao Te Ching at Barnes and Noble, and that was kind of the extent of what was available. 
Um, so I see now that I've been kind of thrown right into this, the Western reception of Taoism, because I, I spent six years there, not really understanding why I was there or what I was doing. Um, but now I've kind of gone through grad school and have gotten kind of the self-reflexive tools to understand how uh, religions change as they go from place to place. Um, and I see now, I'm seeing myself more and more as someone at this hinge joint where Taoism is coming west. What does that mean and what does it do? Um, I'm kind of right in the middle of that, I see. And you said that you, you know, you listed off uh, mysticism and, you know, all the various things that you've been studying and uh, what you were concerned with there. So now, you, you when you walk around, uh, do you get a feeling about certain places? Like, do you have a, a skill in that sense of you can you can pick out like, oh, this is a sacred spot. This is a paranormal hot spot. I get a feeling about this place. I get a vibe about that place. Is that something that's amped up for you or no? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I would say it is amped up. Um, just within Taoism, a huge, I mean, you, you might say the main thing in Taoism is the cultivation of sensitivity. Um, both sensitivity to your own body, that's mostly kind of what the meditation is, is tuning into the stuff that's happening um, that we just kind of want years to listen to. And also, but also tuning into your environment. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up in Houston, uh, Houston, Texas, which is, you know, getting crazier and crazier floods every year now. It's only a matter of time before it goes the way of Atlantis. And uh, I, you know, moved to China for six years and came back. And the Houston I returned to was completely different from the one I grew up in. Uh, and that wasn't because the city had changed a lot, even though, it, you know, it has there's been a lot of development. Um, but it was just total kind of change in perspective about space and place and people that happened through living both in super, one of the poorest provinces in China in very rural conditions, um, but also it kind of with a continual cognizance of like sacred space. Um, so yeah, that, that was totally uh, kind of, that perceptive ability was amped up through my training. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you just two more questions. Um, so would it be fair to say then that from the Taoist perspective, uh, so the sacred is the real, but the catalyst for the real is the unreal? Is that fair to say? Huh. Um, well... So the, the, the whole sacred is the real thing. That isn't the specific view of Taoism per se. That, that's this kind of this theorist of religion, Mircea Eliade. That's his way oh, of I'm talking sorry. about it. Okay. But at the same time, I mean, it does apply to Taoism, though, because everything is, is sanctified in Taoism. Everything is part of Tao. Um, and so, but it's catalyzed by the unreal. Can you kind of specify what you're well, referring it, to there? It sounds like there's got to be some sort of paranormal hotspot for that sacred you know, stamp of approval <laughs> to be put on a place. Uh, and the paranormal is the thing, mm. you know, is not the normal. So uh, unreal in the Jeff Kripal sense of the term, not in the uh, skeptical sense. I see. So, yeah, kind of like impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because all of these dualities um, uh, kind of, they don't, Taoism doesn't have a lot of these dualities. So the, the normal and the paranormal and what you might call the real and the unreal, because everything is, is ultimately, you know, Tao. <laughs> um, but on a practical level, uh, the kind of what spaces are sacred uh, are often, and this is a huge kind of argument that I, I don't really, I can't really <laughs> back up right now, 
but it, they are often catalyzed by what you would call paranormal events from our kind of contemporary framework, so, especially the place where I was, which was uh, Mudong, um, which is also like the kind of like ground zero for for basically Bigfoot sightings in China, the Yeren. <laughs> so I have a friend who's studying that, and that's also uh, all around where I was. Farmers would, would talk about seeing the Yeren around where I was, the, the Bigfoot. So hmm. weird shit happens there. I don't know what to say. <laughs> so how does that affect you then? Because it sounds like, I mean, you're, you're way into comics and movies, uh, fantasy movies, to the extent that you actually try to go and become a character. I mean, it sounds like in your you know later formative years. So you don't have that same formative thing that we all get, right? Which is like, Oh, to be an adult, you have to just go to college, get a job, blah, 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 pay attention to, you know, these serious topics of politics, which are actually romper room things going on that we just sort of um, stoically assess and pretend that they're not romper room um, or kindergarten. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with romper room, but they're just, you know, everything is sort of immature, but, but gussied up and called mature because we say it in a suit and tie. Uh, but you don't have that. You go straight from like comic book immaturity into this realm of comic book maturity, really. Uh, how does, how does that affect you now that you're out and about in the, in the so-called real world, uh, where, well, I mean, not that that isn't the real world, but you know what I mean? Like you're here in, uh, suit and tieville, but this is your background now knowing what you know, how do you maneuver through life? Um, yeah, that, that's a, a, a good question. Um, I mean, we're all kind of walking in the footsteps of uh, kind of archetypes that have come before us, I think. You know, Nietzsche um, and Mircea Eliade both talk about the eternal return. Um, and so, you know, the, the dreams of previous generations in the U.S. have, have kind of famously fallen on, on deaf ears within my generation, I think. Uh, the, the millennials are often characterized as a, like man-child is a very common way of, of referring to them. And so in a certain reading, the whole trajectory of my life fits kind of perfectly into this, this very kind of critical reading of millennials as kind of Peter Pan, you know, never, never land sort of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but I think one of the reasons that, that this generation is characterized like that is because, well, I mean, if you look at the kind of financial situation, I graduated into a, a massive economic recession that's a product of this kind of like catastrophe capitalism. And so the, the baby boomer kind of mythologies of um, kind of never-ending economic growth and uh, middle class, everyone gets a lawn sort of stuff, they just don't make any sense anymore. And so I couldn't walk in those shoes and do that eternal return of the American kind of businessmen as much as I wanted to. And I never did want to. Anyway, um, so people are forging kind of new new kind of uh, life paths. And a lot of that involves, I think, resurrection of ancient or discredited ones. Um, <laughs> is that a little too vague? No, that's good. And I guess I lied. I have one more question because... As I'm listening to you, I'm like, God, you're actually really fascinating. And I wonder, do you feel fascinating or do you feel as though you've stumbled into fascinating things or is it all just kind of normal to you at this point? Oh, man, uh, all of the above. I guess it depends on what day of the week it is. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Um, 
<laughs> but I mean, I've read enough like a uh, Buddhist philosophy and stuff like that to regard um, the me and the Simon as, as something of a kind of uh, a little fiction, you know, mm-hmm. that's socially necessary, but not ultimately real. And so, yeah, the, 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 the my, I do have a kind of daily meditation practice. And through that, the, I kind of, on a daily basis, my own perception of, of selfhood is, is kind of blissfully obliterated <laughs> and then kind of reconstituted again. So I'm always reminded that this whole personality thing is just a kind of a game. Well, is there something about you uh, or life in general that uh, is sacred uh, that can be articulated? Um, I've really struggled uh, with what is sacred in my own life. Uh, but the, the things that, that are kind of unimpeachably sacred in my own experience are actually our places. So Wudong, where I was, and northern New Mexico, where, which is where my parents live, um, is just like punch you in the face sacred. <laughs> You know, you could, you could be the, the deafest, uh, kind of least sacralized person in the world and, and still be really blown away by Taos, New Mexico. Um, space and relationships, you know, I'm not Christian, but my, my marriage is, is absolutely sacred. Well, Simon, we will leave it on that note. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. I, I hope some sense comes out of all this. <laughs> <laughs> or nonsense, which is more fun. <laughs> or, yeah, it is more fun. I suppose.